about a year ago, Nevo Brian landed at New York City's JFK airport. So I got off the plane and um, I had my harp with me, which is ginormous in a big case. And then I had a big wheelie bag and a big rucksack and another handbag. Neve was moving from Ireland to the big city to pursue a music career. As you might have guessed, she's a harpist. I'm from a lovely village called Kildimo. I guess a pretty traditional Irish village because it's just one street. There's a church, always. There's a post office, always. We have one, two, three, four, four pubs. The population of Kildimo is about 400. And even with the relatively high number of pubs per capita, it's a small music scene. That's why she's here. I just kind of wanted to see what opportunities were here. I think I was just looking for a bit of adventure. And her New York adventure began immediately on an unexpectedly difficult hunt for Wi-Fi. And I was like, I'm in New York City and there's no Wi-Fi in this terminal. It was nuts. So I had to move from one terminal to another with all my stuff because they had no Wi-Fi. So I had to walk all the way across and I had blisters on my hands and the things were pulling down my back and it was so hot. And remember, she's carrying that harp. So it's an Irish harp. So uh, if I'm standing up, it's maybe up to my shoulder. Neve expected movement in the city to be easier and she hasn't even left the airport yet. When she finally gets an internet connection, she sets off in a ride shell. People beep in their horns and then you beep back at the person who beeped at you and it's just a tirade of beeping. After blisters, back pain, sweat and swearing, Neve finally pulls up to her building. When I got to the apartment, the door was tiny. It was so small. It was on the side of a bakery. And uh, I opened the door and I looked up the stairs and I was like, oh my God, I, I'm not going to be able to get my harp up the stairs because it's huge. Neve struggles, but luckily a neighbour sees her and offers some much needed help. And he was asking where I was from and then he's like, so uh, you do lots of gigs? And I was like, oh no, I've, I've nothing set up. And he was like, you brought this all the way from Ireland and you don't even know what you're doing with it? And I was like, yeah, thanks very much. I, this is a great welcome to you. It was like the most New York thing ever. Like, I'm going to help you, but you're really stupid what you're doing here. This is not a good idea. Neve is just one of the three million people worldwide who move to cities each week in search of bigger and better opportunities. And that's just the beginning. In the last decade, the world saw a tipping point. For the first time, over half of the population was living in urban environments. And by the year 2050, experts predict that two out of every three people will be living in them. At the same time, metro area boundaries will begin to overlap and merge into megacities of 10 million plus people. Challenges are piling up. Things like traffic, rising rents, overflowing trash cans. In the past, these issues might have been solved with ad hoc solutions, say, a new bus line or a few more dumpsters. The rule was one problem, one solution. But it's no longer that simple. City leaders today see the big picture. These problems are all interconnected. The new rule? We need connected solutions. And that's what we're talking about today. Smart cities. Or at least smarter cities. 
a worldwide pursuit to make our cities work for everyone, from first point of entry to front door, and everywhere in between. You're listening to Fortune Favours the Bold. I'm Mona Chalabi. On this episode, we'll zoom in on a New York City neighbourhood that wanted a better quality of life and forge the partnerships and the plan to make it happen. Then we'll travel to Canada, where we'll learn about a contest to see who can come up with the smartest city, with millions of dollars of prize money on the line. To me, a smart city is one that's using technology to advance equitable, accessible, and inclusive planning and development that's really centered around the experience of its most vulnerable and disadvantaged or even isolated residents and to ultimately craft solutions that better um, address the needs of their lives. Leila Bozorg works for New York City Housing Preservation and Development. She's the Deputy Commissioner for Neighbourhood Strategies. And right now, she's part of a project to make one Brooklyn neighbourhood more connected. It's a project with big lessons for cities of the future. Brownsville is a pretty lively mix of African-American, Afro-Caribbean, and Latinx residents. It has a pretty distinct sense of place and identity. When you meet residents, people are very friendly. Um, You get the sense that it's a very family-oriented area. And it has a pretty unique spirit of creativity, entrepreneurship, and resilience. Layla's not alone in this. She and her department are working alongside New York City government partners, like the Mayor's Office of the Chief Technology Officer, the Economic Development Corporation, and many more. And they're a part of an even larger coalition, which includes non-profit and private sector partners, all working together to create solutions for some of the issues facing Brownsville. Things like high unemployment, a high crime rate, and poorer health outcomes compared to other parts of New York. When you go out there... You can see there's aging infrastructure, there are large swaths of vacant public city-owned lands, and there are some distressed buildings. Some of that just remains part of the backdrop of Brownsville. Brownsville faces some challenges, but Layla wants that to change. Now, the old way would be for those in charge to talk to residents during the planning process, but that's kind of where the input stopped the new way is much more ambitious. It's called the Brownsville Plan. Layla and her team are taking a simple approach to improve the neighbourhood, being clear about how the city works and listening to the community about what they actually need during planning and implementation. Step one, transparency. We have something called our Neighbourhood Planning Playbook that actually tries to lay out a transparent and clear process so people have a sense of what they can expect from us as we're using their time. We needed their time as much as they may, quote-unquote, need services from the city. Once the community was on board, Layla moved to step two, listening. They asked the people in Brownsville what changes they wanted to see. Groups in the community who had noticed for quite some time that there were these parcels of of city-owned land um, that they were advocating to be developed as affordable housing. Housing. That's what people wanted. An affordable place to live. And so that's what Layla and her team decided to create. 2,500 new affordable homes. 
And then, of course, the new housing that we're going to build um, is going to, you know, mean that there's new customers in the neighborhood. Uh, we're going to be able to support local businesses better. The streets are going to be more activated, which are, will ultimately lead to a safer environment. Other things that the community wanted to see? Less litter and better lighting. So they're partnering with local businesses to make that happen. For example, EcoRich LLC are bringing a waste processing system that turns food scraps into compost in 24 hours. So they're removing food waste from uh, basically garbage that's otherwise landfill bound. And Mothers on the Move. Which is offering a door-to-door recycling pickup service um, and encouraging residents to increase their participation in recycling through peer-to-peer education. And they're making it safer and easier to see at night, thanks to a street light art project in a neighbourhood plaza. It's a project that's created and led by Brownsville youth um, who have designed and will be installing a 3D projection system. Um, It's going to be an interactive installation. So when an individual walks within a certain proximity to the projection or when a certain number of people enter the plaza, it's going to shift in in color and brightness um, or imagery. part is that kids in Brownsville are learning how to code the lighting, customising the look and feel, taking ownership of their space. For now, this might just be taking place in one neighbourhood, but cities of all sizes could learn a lesson in listening and collaborating with citizens and partners to find solutions that contribute to the bigger picture of the bigger urban challenges at hand. When we come back, we'll see how an entire country is holding a contest to find the city with the smartest solutions. And we'll hear from two of the finalists for its $50 million grand prize. You're listening to Fortune Favors the Bold. As you can probably tell already, it's important for cities to be smarter and more inclusive in how they create solutions. Miguel Gaminio Jr. is the executive vice president for global cities at MasterCard. He knows that more so than regional or national governments, cities are in a unique position to positively impact their inhabitants and visitors alike. It's really about using technology and leveraging collaboration and partnerships to be smarter about the way we address the world's biggest urban challenges. Collaboration and partnerships, they're hardwired into MasterCard's DNA. And MasterCard uses that expertise in their City Possible program. The principal goal of City Possible is getting the cities together to share successes and failures with each other, to surface the common challenges that they face across the world and we can identify where our resources and assets can contribute to solving those biggest urban challenges with them, not necessarily just for them. MasterCard is committed to co-developing sustainable and scalable solutions for cities everywhere, like in London, where they've implemented contactless technology. Now, travelers can simply tap and go to pay for their fares. This adds convenience for commuters and efficiency and cost savings for the transportation system as a whole. And that's just one example. Leveraging the superpower of public sector collaboration helps every city level each other up. I'm confident that because of the way we're engaging with cities and activating their voice, that they will continue to help us identify different challenges 
that give us the opportunity to bring to bear different resources from from our own company, but also from our partners to help build solutions for cities around the world. By bringing cities together and allowing them to share solutions to common challenges, MasterCard can help empower communities around the world and accelerate their progress. Are you interested in learning how City Possible can make your cities more connected and inclusive? Send an email to Fortune Favors the Bold at FFTB at MasterCard.com. That's FFTB at MasterCard.com. Welcome back to Fortune Favours the Bold. Meet the Honourable Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne. He's a member of the Canadian Parliament, in charge of infrastructure for the whole country. The mission we have given to all the cities across Canada is how can we do more and how can we do better? In the Great White North, cities are growing fast. And the suburbs are growing even faster, which is putting more strain on the systems that make cities work. Like public transportation, roads, hospitals and trash removal. So last year, the Canadian government issued a challenge to its cities. Come up with unique and technologically advanced ways to solve their biggest problems and win $50 million. They're calling it the Smart Cities Challenge. It's a bit like the hackathon, where people are coming and say, OK, how can we tackle that particular challenge? They received entries from every corner of the country. We got about 130 applications, and that represented around 225 communities of various size across the country, from major urban areas to indigenous communities to smaller communities. Francois says that a lot of the proposals included really cool technology, like using energy-efficient smart lights to grow food indoors during the dark Canadian winters, or creating an open Wi-Fi network throughout the city using lampposts as Wi-Fi hotspots. While all these techie and futuristic gadgets might be really cool, Francois says it's important that the tools serve a larger mission. It's really about how to improve the lives of people and how we can do that in our bigger cities and smaller communities. Even small changes in making cities more connected can have huge impacts on people's lives. For instance, a few cities across Canada have been working to better serve their homeless teenage populations. For a long time, officials were stumped as to why many of these teenagers weren't using available shelters. But then they started to look at root causes and found a simple but significant barrier the shelter's front desk hours. We offer a lot of services, but those services would be offered most of the time between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. So the first thing you realize is that you're very unlikely to need services during 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. If a teen called the shelter in the evening to see if they had an empty bed, no one would pick up. So these cities made Wi-Fi more accessible and made an app so that the teens could get information about open beds online. What you need is real-time information, because if you're likely to go to a shelter at midnight on a particular day, and you come to that shelter and it's full, and they say, sorry, you have to come another day, human nature being what it is, you're not likely to go back. Connectivity is key, and so is making sure that solutions are people-centred. It's only been a year, so the cities don't have a lot of data yet. But they're hoping that this app could be the difference between a kid sleeping on the street or safely in a bed. 
But Francois has three more words for cities vying for the big prize. Partnerships, partnerships, partnerships. There's no problem you can tackle on your own. There's really simple solution to complex problems. And some of the challenges they have, if they were easy to fix, they would have already been fixed. In order to take on Canada's complex problems, Francois says we need to be connecting all of a city's stakeholders. And that's just what the top contenders of the Smart Cities Challenge are trying to do. Right now, the competition is in its final phase. Five cities remain, vying for the $50 million prize. Quebec City, Montreal, Waterloo, Vancouver and Edmonton. We're now going to meet two of these finalists, who are each approaching the challenge from different angles in this Smart City brawl. In this corner, the city where the mountains meet the ocean, the best from the West, where the rain never quits and the tech market is out of control, we bring you Vancouver! We need to be smart about how we build our city. The way to do that is to use like all the tricks that we have up our sleeves to enable us to create a, a beautiful city and live in a beautiful city. Jesse Adcock is a born and bred Vancouverite and the city's chief technology officer. Vancouver is the most densely populated city in Canada. And since the tech boom of the past decade, its population has exploded in the city proper and also neighbouring municipalities, like the city of Surrey. Surrey is adding a 1,000 residents a month. It's such rapid growth. So there's a lot of problems that are going to come with that. With more people on the road and more people using public transportation in the Vancouver area, there's congestion and delays. These problems are already incredibly frustrating. And Vancouver doesn't want to wait for them to become an even bigger issue. And so what we need to do is we need to think about planning for the future using future technologies. For their Smart Cities Challenge application, Vancouver is focusing on revamping their entire transportation system to make people's commutes more seamless and more efficient. Imagine for a second you're waking up in Surrey. It's Monday morning. You have to get to work. In order to avoid crazy traffic, you decide to take public transit. So you walk to a bus, get off at a train station on the expo line where you wait around for a few minutes. 15 stops later, you get off at downtown Vancouver and walk to your job. And don't forget, it's raining. In the old way of doing things, the city government would look at one problem and find one solution. Frequent delays on a particular bus route? Well, fix that bus route. But not anymore. You need to be a little bit more broad in how you address the problem, more iterative, more experimental, um, use different kinds of technologies, collaborate a little bit differently. So Vancouver is looking at the transportation ecosystem as a whole, making sure that systems are talking to each other and that officials have the information they need to make smarter decisions. Their proposal is to partner with private companies to create what they're calling collision-free corridors. These are super-efficient new routes that use internet technology to link modes of transportation, like high-speed skytrains, buses and self-driving shuttles, to get people from point A to point B without delay. Jesse says that the Vancouver commute of the future will minimise the time you spend just waiting around. 
So you jump on a SkyTrain and then you take the train downtown. And when you're on this train, you're, you know, working and then you get off the train at the end and you need to get to your office, which might and it's raining. So you don't want to walk. Um, so you want to jump into a self-driving shuttle to get there. This will not only make trips easier and safer for commuters, but also improve people's health. Because if you have fewer idling cars stuck in traffic or half empty buses, the air is better to breathe. To be honest, like I'm really excited about the the self-driving piece. The idea that we could optimize the movement of vehicles um, in a way that can reduce our impact and footprint on the environment. Jesse thinks the new transportation corridor will make daily routines better in Vancouver. And she hopes that the corridors might serve as models for other communities too. But first, they need to win the money to make it happen. Because remember, this is a competition and there are other cities vying for the big prize. In this corner, the little city on the big prairie, home to the biggest mall in North America, the heart of the River Valley, I give you Edmonton, Alberta! Shoma Ghosh is part of the team in charge of the City of Edmonton's proposal for the Smart Cities Challenge. His official city title is Director of Digital Enablement. He's a big believer in the power of tech solutions to make lives better. Okay, a smart city, um, it leverages data and analytics to make decisions, whereas a not-so-smart city will uh, rely on gut feeling to make decisions. Shoma and his team are focusing on Edmontonians' health by designing a city that prevents them from getting sick in the first place. Now, this might seem crazy, because under the old way of thinking, healthcare and city planning were siloed and might not seem connected at all. If you get sick, you go to the doctor to get better. Case closed. But Shoma believes that a city can and should be working together to do more. The rules that we are trying to break to this challenge is that we are saying a municipality delivers programs and services and has a big impact or influence on the preventative side of uh, health by influencing the social determinants of health. By social determinants of health, Shoma means things like access to healthy food, preventive medicine, and again, easy transportation that allows people to access doctors. Obviously, a city can't control for things like genetic predisposition. But something that the city of Edmonton can control? Bus routes and the location of grocery stores. Shoma gives an example of residents who develop type 2 diabetes. What we have been seen from data is that uh, most of the healthcare dollars are being spent on treating diabetes, but uh, very less on actually planning a municipality or a city that will give all the different options to a person to avoid them from being diabetic in the first place. Shoma hypothesizes that areas where there's a spike in type 2 diabetes might correlate with a lack of resources. And he believes smart city planning could fix this. We can ensure that transit is in place to enable these people to go to see their family physicians, uh, to ensure that there are no food deserts, so there are like no uh, areas or neighbourhood where you cannot get access to healthy food. The result would be a city that would not only move people and goods more effectively, 
but also help its residents live better, healthier lives. If Edmonton wins the competition, they want to start by addressing the needs of two particularly vulnerable populations, new immigrants and senior citizens. Then, they hope to expand to the rest of their residents. And in order to keep the city current, Edmonton hopes to institute what they're calling a living lab programme, which will make data about the city more readily available to startups with new ideas to solve existing problems. It will also facilitate partnerships. Shamer says the $50 million grand prize from the Smart Cities Challenge would be a huge jumpstart to the effort. The objective was to make an impact through technology, data and analytics, make an impact to people's lives. Despite their different approaches to the challenge, Edmonton, Vancouver and the other finalists believe that creating more connected cities will create a better world for future generations. Here's Jesse from Vancouver again. Right now, looking out our window, right? The sky is blue, the mountains are green, the air is clear, the air is fresh. I am hoping that for my daughter in the future, that Vancouver looks a lot like it looks to me uh, now. And in order to make sure that we do that, we need to be smart about how we build our city. And the winner is... Well, we don't really know yet. The grand prize-winning city will be announced sometime later this year. The old rule, the way it used to be, the cities are a jumble of solutions and systems stacked on top of each other. That's not the way cities will look in the future. From Vancouver to Edmonton to Brownsville, Urban planners, governments, private sector companies, nonprofits, and communities are working together to make life better for the people who live there. All these stakeholders put their heads together and ask, how do we make this work for all of us? And what do we need to make it work into the future? But as crucial as they are, it's not the data, the technology, or the partnerships that make a city smart. It's the people. Remember our harpist from the top of the show, Neve? She had an intimidating arrival to the city. But since then, she's become a pro at navigating the subway with her giant wooden harp. But now it's a very smooth, like I just throw it down in the ground and I scooch it under and I swipe my card and I look like I've done this a hundred times. And she's quickly found the opportunity she was looking for with her move to New York. And then like, I was really busy with gigs last year and I would always think of that guy You know, the friendly neighbour that helped her literally get in the door of her first apartment in Queens. I wish I'd run into him again and be like, oh yeah, if you want to catch me at these next five gigs, yeah, if you're around or whatever. Next time on Fortune Favours the Bold, we look at how hugely important small businesses are, locally, regionally and globally. It's about control. It's about knowing that this is my vision. These are the kind of products that I would like to bring to the market. And this is the kind of impact that I would like to have in the community. Fortune Favours the Bold is a production of Mastercard and Gimlet Creative. 
This episode was produced by Cassandra Sun, Kerry Ann Thomas, Bradley Campbell, Jorge Estrada, B.A. Parker, and Matt Shields. Production assistance from Max Gibson. Sarah Geis is our editor. Special thanks to Paul Wilson, Rocky Mera, Zhao Bo, and Charvi Sachdev. Our MasterCard executive producers are Christine Elliott and Marcy Cohen. MasterCard editorial direction from Brooke Capsuroni. Our MasterCard mid-roll producers are Arsalan Darnish and Reiner Karmet. We got additional help from Mira Belgrave, Kristen Haynes and Rebecca Kaufman. Rob Hahn mixed this episode. Technical direction from Zach Schmidt. And our theme song is by Bobby Lord. Thanks to Neve O'Brien for letting us use one of her songs. I'm Mona Chalabi. See you next time.